0: Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment where we continue to discover what makes a best-selling novel and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book.
1: I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stay, and as always, a huge thank you to everyone who keeps this show going, including our patrons on Patreon and our academics in the Bestseller Academy. If you want to discover more about the Academy, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Or if you want to support the podcast, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Mr. D, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mark. And I think we have to announce this week
0: is actually National support Podcast Week, <laughs> um, as every week is. So absolutely, <laughs> folks. Um, come and join in the fun. There's so much more that you can you can get from being a supporter of this podcast. But yeah, there's so there's so much to talk about today. Mark, isn't there? I'm doing great. I want to find out though how your Comic Con ex- experiences went. You went on a massive adventure this last weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're for reasons, we're recording this way ahead of time, so you'll be listening to this probably in the middle of November. But yeah, I was at the MCM Comic Con at the end of October, which is the big one in the UK, the London Comic Con, I think on the Saturday, which is when we were there, there's footfall of 100,000 people over the weekend. Because I can't and believe there's that many yeah, people. And it's at the Excel Centre in London, which is, I think, a mile long from end-to-end and there's two colossal halls just full of wonderful, geeky stuff. And, um, yeah, I was there. I was uh, I was moderating a panel on world building with some wonderful authors. We had a really, really good time. Um, you have to be – it was a panel of six authors, but only three microphones. <laughs> um, and one, they didn't have enough chairs, so one of the Paul Claire North was sitting on the floor. Uh, but we had a full house, standing room only kind of thing. Uh, you're in a corner of this vast hall and it's all kind of bordered off, but you can see there's still lots of external noise coming in. So you have to be a bit of a circus barker, you know, you have to. And I'm, you know, some people have got questions. So I, there's no one doing the mic. So I'm running out into the audience, handing out microphones and stuff like that. So it was quite energetic. It was, it was really, really good fun. I'm glad I did it. But I'm also glad that we had access to the green room which is you
2: know which is like stage
1: exactly a little bit of oasis of calm with a balcony you know and there's sandwiches and fruit and drinks and stuff like that it's all very very civilized so i'm so glad we had that as well um yeah with your very own access
0: to your personal porter cabin right potty
1: (laughs) Well, they did. They did have very nice lavatories. Not a porter cabin. It was not realise that. It's <laughs> one of the best perks of
0: being backstage, isn't it? Right. It really. Is. It oh,
2: is really, that's fantastic. Is. Tell yeah, me
0: yeah. one thing that was surprising about this year's Comic Con. Was there something that made you laugh, or
1: uh, apart from obviously the incredible
0: amounts of people showing up as well, which is insane?
1: It was. Um, it was the good vibe. Actually, everyone was in a real. You get that number of people together. Like, if you put a hundred thousand. I don't know football fans together and there's always an element that's a bit uh, but it, it was just a big loving at the MCM I think people were just you know just delighted and happy to be there and even though it was quite crowded everyone was in a really good mood I think that's always that always gives you sort of hope for the future of humanity um, so yeah that was there was a a feeling of optimism there. I did a, you know, we did we all did a signing at Forbidden on the Forbidden Planet stand afterwards. And everyone I spoke to on the stand was just, you know, just delighted to see authors and get their books signed. And it was a really, really good positive vibe, which I, I, I and I tell you what, I tell you what, this is um this was really encouraging. And when I I I mean I've been doing the MCM Comic-Con for quite a few years now. Uh I don't think I've ever seen such a diverse Comic-Con. You know, it, it used to be it used to be very white, you know, and this was this was probably the most diverse Comic Con I've ever seen. And it was, it, I you know, of course, the thing that's happened is we've had, you know, Black Panther and Spider-Man into the uh, Spider-Verse and stuff like that, where you've got. You know, non-white people leading, uh, uh, leading these great franchises and movies and animated films and what have you. So it's some. Um, it felt really inclusive. It felt really, like I say, really positive. Really, really, you know. Particularly, there's a lot of news at the moment, Mister D. I'm sure you. You know, if you spend more than twenty minutes watching rolling news, it's like, oh my god. So you know, it was nice to just be in with a bunch of people who. Were you know being being geeky about the things that they love that that was the thing that that gave me hope. That's brilliant. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> to hear it because I do think I do think there's something wonderful when you get you get a group
0: of people together who are all excited to be somewhere. And and like you say, it's a little bit of a break from reality. I always oh, yeah. used to think about conferences and, and festivals in particular. Like you know, can, we talked about that last week about leaving planet Earth for a few days or just even a day. <laughs> and so yeah, I think it's um, it's it's super important. And and you're absolutely right. I think at times that we're we're going through right now, where there's a lot there's a lot of difficult news and a lot of people are really struggling. I think that um, it's even more important to find your tribe of people that build you up, oh, yeah. um, that have good energy around you. Because I think there's a real, right now, such a challenge, isn't there? Like so many people are so down about everything that it brings everyone else down. And um, yeah, I think it's great. I think it recharges the battery, doesn't it, in many ways?
1: Definitely.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Now let's let's dive into our interview this week, because we have, uh, talking about a positive force and a positive energy, we have a oh, lovely, yeah. lovely, lovely guest this week, don't we? Tell us about uh, Tracy Lien.
1: Tracy Lien, uh, she was born and raised in southwestern Sydney, Australia, uh, but she's been a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and she's got a debut novel, All That's Left Unsaid, uh, which tells the story of a young Vietnamese-Australian woman who returns home in the wake of her brother's shocking murder. And uh, we discuss all kinds. This is such a fun fun interview all sorts of great stuff we talk about how she developed a writing habit and listeners long-time listeners this will be familiar to you um she talks about balancing an entertaining story with real world issues and why very importantly why readers don't owe you anything brilliant so let's dive in and listen
0: to the enlightenment of tracy Lien.
1: tracy Lien, welcome to the bestseller experiment how are you today
2: i'm doing well how are you
1: I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, all the better for discovering your novel, All That's Left Unsaid, which uh, is just remarkable stuff. It's, it's beautifully written. And I think uh, a, a lot of it is a, is to do with the protagonist who you kind of you really get into straight away. But let's hear it from you. Tell us about All That's Left Unsaid and where where it's come from.
2: Okay, so all that's left unsaid is a novel that's set in the year 1996 in Cabramatta, which is a Vietnamese refugee enclave in Sydney, Australia. And the story begins when a 17 year old boy is beaten to death at a busy Cabramatta restaurant. When his older sister, Key, returns home for the funeral, she learns that the police are completely stumped by her brother's case. About a dozen witnesses were present, and they all claim to have seen nothing. So she takes it upon herself to track down each witness to find out what happened. And with each chapter, you learn a bit more and get closer and closer to the truth. So there, there are elements of like a murder mystery there, but it also deals with, you know, refugee communities and the myth of the model minority and, you know, how it feels when you're sort of straddling two worlds.
1: Yeah. Key is fascinating to me because you've written it in a very close third person. We're kind of right over Key's shoulder and it has this friendly, almost confessional feel. And she's our way into this family and friends in this community. Can you tell us about the choice to tell the story from Key's point of view?
2: Yeah. One of the pieces of advice that I was given when I was studying creative writing in grad school was have an active protagonist you know, my, my uh, advisor at the time, like she was not um, prescriptive about a lot of things. She was like, write whatever you want, set it wherever you want in whatever genre, but please just have an active protagonist. And when she said that a light bulb went off because I had been writing short stories in class that was sort of like, oh, this person has a lot of feelings and they're reflecting <laughs> and. And But what are they actually doing? Are they actually kind of depressed and are uh, not doing a lot, and we're just in their head a lot. And so the moment she said, "Have an active protagonist," I was like, "Oh, I need someone who um is actually doing things in this mm-hmm. world, who is actually interacting with people. And so I figured, okay, let's follow the the sister of the murder victim." And let's make her a journalist as well, because I knew that Key would be probably quite a reserved and anxious person. So I was like, how do I give her the tools to do something that would mortify most people, which is to track down the witnesses to your brother's murder? And having worked in journalism myself and as a fairly reserved and quiet person normally, you know, whenever I put on my journalist hat, I felt... A lot more powerful, a lot more capable, Um, and honestly, I was most of the time I was just afraid of letting down my editors, and so (laughs) I would just do whatever it took. And so I was like, "I'm gonna, I'll make her a journalist," and this way, she's got that external element to to give her the strength, you know, to go and track down these witnesses.
1: It's that is such a great piece of advice because it is a classic uh, mistake made by I was going to say made by a lot of first time writers. I still do it. I suspect a lot of writers listening to this still do it. You have a protagonist. You want them to sort of re- represent an ideal, and as you said, you, you're thinking about thoughts and feelings, but things are happening to them, and they're not necessarily driving the story. And uh, it's um, it is like a, a, a light bulb going off in your head, isn't it? When you think, oh, actually, they can they can be an agent of change in this world, which is um,
2: absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they don't have to be like the superhero. Right, they don't have to be. You know, when we think of uh, people talking about like a strong character, you know, we're not talking about someone who is invincible and fearless. You know, Keytren is filled with uncertainty and doubt, and she is at times neurotic, and petty, and unlikable. Um, But the fact that she is willing to um, be an active participant in the world—that that things happen in the world because of her. That is what makes her an active protagonist. So for anyone who's listening, being like, but I don't want my character to be a superhero. They don't have to be. The world just has to change in some way because of them. And that was the advice I got. I have taken heart and continue to think about a lot.
1: The other word you used there, which rang a bell with me, is unlikable. And very often you might get a note back saying, this character's unlikable. And it's often quite a misguided note because it doesn't mean – being unlikable is a bad thing. I think some of our favourite characters in fiction are unlikable. I think what it generally means is they're kind of a bit boring and not doing anything. And, you know, to to have a character with agency, to have a character, like you say, an active protagonist, sometimes they have to ruffle a few feathers and upset people, and that's um, that's what Key does in uh, throughout the story. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's about having a character that people can become invested in. Um, And part of that is understanding why they are the way they are. So if you have a character who's just a bit of a jerk, consistently like a jerk, and you don't really understand why and nothing seems to... um, you know, like nothing interesting really happens as a result Mm. of their (laughs) jerkery, then I think that's when people sort of lose patience, but they're like, wait, why am I following, why am I giving my time to this jerk? So that I think there has to be some kind of reward, whether they are a very entertaining jerk or a very witty jerk, um, (laughs) or there is a backstory that makes you understand why they are the way they are. And so you have a bit more sympathy for them.
1: Absolutely. Now you mentioned, you know, this is set in 1996. You said it's dealing with some pretty heavy issues as well, you know, discrimination against Asian Australians. Uh, but you, you've also said that it's important that it's a page turner. Can you talk about how you balance those two elements where you're, you're dealing with some, you know, real history, real lives, real communities, but also putting a murder mystery in the middle of that as well? How do you, how do you keep that balance even?
2: It was really important to me that this novel didn't feel like homework to read. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sometimes you 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 know that there's a book that you should read, but the, either the way it's been marketed or the way you've heard it talked about, you're just like, I'll get around to it. I'll <laughs> buy it. I'll put it on my bookshelf, and one of these days I will get around. And I. I didn't want my book to fall into that category even though a lot of those books once you read them you're like oh why did I why did I wait you know this is amazing um and so knowing that I was going to write about issues of race and discrimination and um you know the the struggles of this refugee community I was like these are all be- these are very heavy themes to begin with so how to how do I make it tempting how do I lure people at that and going like, oh, race or oh, racism. Um, and so I thought about the books that I love and the books that I can't put down once I start them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them ended up being murder mysteries or thrillers. You know, I think of um, The Attenuans, The Sympathizer, which is this incredibly intellectual book um, about Vietnam and American imperialism, but it's a spy thriller. Right. As well, and there's a great quote from him where he said, "A lot of novels that are historically or politically concerned tend to be long on mood and short on entertainment." Right. And I wanted to write a novel that could do both. Um, and again, that was another light bulb moment where I'm like, "Oh, I can write about you know my feelings and um, and all all the the moody aspect of things and have it not be a slog." You know, mm. if if I sort of play my cards, right, if I'm very uh, deliberate in how I structure this and in the type of story I want to tell. Um, because ultimately I knew I wanted to tell a story that challenged the myth of the model minority and mm. would explore these themes. But I could do that in any number of ways. I could have written an epic poem. I could have done a short story collection. I could have, you know... Uh, done it in a series of limericks. (laughs) Um, And so it's like knowing that I have all these options, why not choose the one that would actually engage readers and would hopefully get my ideas across? And so for me, personally, I love murder mysteries. I love crime thrillers. And so I I chose to learn from those.
1: Fantastic. You mentioned earlier your background in journalism, and we love talking to journalists who've become novelists because they tell us the same thing every time, which is their background in journalism has really helped them as a novelist because they're used to deadlines, they're used to rewriting, they're used to honing it down. Can you tell us uh, you know, how your journalism has helped you as a writer?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because when I first quit my job in journalism to go and study creative writing at the University of Kansas, I was worried that my journalism background would hold me back. Because in journalism, you're not allowed to make things up. And in fiction writing, that's the name of the game. (laughs) And so I would sort of be looking over my shoulder as I was writing fiction, like scared that the fact police were going to come hit me. I was like, oh my goodness, like what am I doing? This isn't allowed. Um, But then once I got over that, I realised that a lot of the skills from journalism transferred wonderfully. Um, So for example, the discipline of writing every day. You know, as a journalist, if you only wrote when you were inspired, you'd get fired like pretty quickly. And so, you know, when I set out to write this novel, I was like, okay, and um, what's the shortest novel? It's like 60,000 words ish, which is around 200 pages. The longest thing I'd ever written as a journalist was maybe 3,000 words long. So I was like, how do I uh, that's that's a really intimidating word mm-hmm. count to hit. So I was like just just write every day, a little bit every day, and I set the bar really low for myself. I had set three hundred words, which Brilliant. you know you you text more than three hundred words a day. <laughs> um, and in the early days, I was really strict about it. Where I would actually stop at three hundred words, even if I was midway through a sentence, because I was like, "I'm going to have more gas in the tank for tomorrow." Right. I want to leave gas in the tank and I don't care if I feel like I'm on a roll, even if I feel like I could write 3000 words today, I'm not going to do it because I'll probably feel depleted tomorrow. So it was about building a habit. And I wanted to spend more days writing than days spent not writing.
1: (laughs) Now, listeners are going to think we've set Tracy up or we've prompted her to do this because, Tracy, I don't know if you're aware, on the podcast, we have a thing called the 200-word-a-day challenge. And it's like you've just repeated back to me the things that we've been saying for about three years on this podcast about creating a habit, having a, you know, setting yourself – I mean, we have 200 words a day. 300 words a day is absolutely, you know, perfect. So, yeah, and it really works, doesn't it? It really, really does work.
2: Right. Because once it becomes a habit, it's no longer daunting. And when mm. something doesn't scare you anymore, you develop confidence. And once you have confidence, you have momentum. And once you have momentum, before you know it, you've hit a first draft. And whether or not the draft is any good is beside the point. It's like you have done it. you know, And now you can go back and revise and uh, turn it into the thing that you ultimately want it to be. So discipline was one of them. The other was, you know, I learned the hard way as a reporter that your readers don't owe you anything and they will abandon your story the moment they lose interest. Um, And so when I was a reporter, the thing I disliked the most was at the end of each day, we'd get the uh, like the charts that would show us the reader numbers, like which article got the most views.
1: Oh, really?
2: And I would spend weeks working on a big feature and think this is so important I've put so much into this, only to see it at the bottom of the charts because no one read it or no one like got past the first, uh, first few paragraphs and it'd be like a dagger to the heart. But what I realised was just because I think a story is interesting doesn't mean everyone else will and it's my job to make it interesting. So that could take the form of, you know, a lead that just grabs the reader, like a hook that, you know really grabs someone. It could be a rendering of a character that's so colorful that people can't look away. Like sometimes, you know, when you start an article and you're like, this person sounds like a trip, like I need to keep reading. Um, Sometimes it's just the presentation of information that's so important that people don't want to abandon the story. And so taking that approach to drafting all that's left unsaid, like I would go back and reread things and be really critical about it. Like first draft, I would allow myself to make a mess. I was not hard on myself at all. I was just banging out the 300 words a day until you get to a first draft. But when I went back to revise, that's when I really scrutinized everything and asked myself, okay, if I'm losing interest here, like if I sort of just speed read that, that's a bad sign, Right. You know, like does this need to be here? Or if I would end a chapter, and feel, okay, I can close the book now, that was a bad sign as well. And I would just ask myself, how do I leave the reader wanting to turn the page or And again, this came back to, like, I didn't have to figure this out just in my own brain. I could look to examples, you know, I could pick up, you know, Jane Harper's The Drive, and just look at how she did it. I could pick up different Dalton's Boy Swallows Universe and see how he did it. Um, there are already so many examples that we can learn from. And, you know, it was such a like valuable source of inspiration. So sort of merging the journalism, um, I guess, the, the revision process of a journalist with doing research and reading um, what's already out there.
1: That That is absolutely, I, I had no idea that, journalism had that facility and that it was that forensic you could learn at which paragraph people were dropping out and i think it's something that novelists we kind of i guess the closest we get to that is when we we ask beta readers or editors to look at our books and they will give us feedback on that but of course once the book is out in the big bad world there's there's nothing we can really do so that's a great great discipline to uh to develop as well that's that's absolutely terrific um now i want to Talk about the fact that very often I'll I'll speak to people on the pod authors on the podcast and I'll say, Oh, you were always a writer from a young age. And they go, Yes, as soon as I could write, I was writing stories. But that that wasn't the case with you, was it, Tracy?
2: Not at all. And sometimes a bit, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I wasn't much of a reader growing up. Um, And I would feel like these days I feel envy when I read profiles of other authors and they're like, yes, I used to get lost in books, you know, (laughs) as a child or I was born with a pen in my hand or I was obsessed with writing stories from the time I was four. And I was like, oh, I was watching a lot of reality TV, (laughs) talk shows and, you know, like there are a whole plot point or like storylines from the Oprah Winfrey show or The Bold and the Beautiful that I have Like, it's just in there, in my head, and I can't get rid of it. Um, So I think there are two reasons why I wasn't really much of a reader as a kid. First is my parents were refugees from Vietnam, and they're fluent in Chinese and Vietnamese, but not in English. And so we didn't have English language books at home, um, and your bedtime reading wasn't really a thing. So I, I didn't develop that habit early on. But... I also know a lot of children of refugees who are avid readers. So, like, what's my excuse then? And I think it was that I got my storytelling fix from television. Mm. It was easy. It was accessible. um, And there was no one at home judging me. You know, there was no one telling me, you really should pick up a book instead of watching TV. It was, you know, the TV was a very effective babysitter for after-school hours. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if you were to watch The Bold and the Beautiful, it's it's dramatic, it's scandalous, um, it really scratches that storytelling itch. Mm. Um, and then if you were to watch, like, Judge Judy, Neighbours, again, it's, sure, maybe it's not the most nutritional kind of storytelling, but it did the job for me at that time. And so um, yeah, I just didn't read a lot. And then the books that we were uh, tasked with reading at school, like there was a lot of Jane Austen. Right. And while I, uh, I now have an appreciation for Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice, I remember when it was assigned in I think maybe year 10, I was just baffled. Like that first line, you know, it's a truth, university blah, 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 And I was like, what? Like <laughs> I'm this 16-year-old from Southwest Sydney. Like what is this? <laughs> and so I felt really dumb a lot of the time. And it was a very frustrating experience to be reading these books that I found unrelatable. Oftentimes I didn't really understand what was going on. And so I decided like maybe books aren't for me like, which sounds ridiculous in hindsight. But at the time, I really felt like, oh, maybe this just isn't my medium. Maybe I'm just a TV kind of person or a magazine type of person. And it wasn't until my early 20s that I gave books another shot. And then I was like, oh, my God, I've been a fool. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
1: That's, that's fascinating. I mean, the thing is, you you talk about daytime soaps and i mean we've had john york on the show who wrote for a a soap in the uk called eastenders and they have to write five six episodes a week you know and they've got to write they've got to write compelling dramatic storytelling so yes you know it's it might not be jane austen but it grips people and people keep coming back for more so all those elements of storytelling are there and, and you're absorbing them you know either consciously or subconsciously so you know all the ingredients are there. It's all it's all it's all an education one way or another. I'm, I'm interested to know when you said you discovered books. Was there one book that or one author that got you excited about reading?
2: Yes, it was George Saunders' uh, "Civil Warland in Bad Decline," which is a short story collection. And when I read it, I thought this is hilarious. I didn't know that books could be this funny yeah. and this playful. Because again, like when when your um when your idea of what books can be is Jane Austen mm. suddenly to read George Saunders, it, it was a breath of fresh air. And again, I felt very foolish in the moment that like I had not made a greater effort to find books that might connect with me. Um but again, it comes back to just the way that my storytelling itch was scratched by so many other, um, other forms of entertainment. So I, I I could be lazy about it. Um, (laughs) And it was only when I read, you know, George Saunders and I was like, I need to read more by him. And then I read everything he wrote. And then uh, I started looking for authors similar to him. And then I started to branch out beyond that and asking friends for recommendations. Um, I remember like that year when I, discovered books <laughs> I, I I just went to everyone I knew and said what's your top five right not not the books that you think people should read but what are your five favorites right you know and so if it's something that's a little soapy if it's something that's super commercial like just I don't there's no judgment here I just want yeah. your, your top five um and then that's how things like expanded out from there and I started to understand my own taste and what I liked and what I didn't like and and yeah, the rest is history.
1: <laughs> was there a, was there a moment when, when you're reading and you know you, you're a journalist, but you start writing novels? Was there a moment where you thought, I want to do this? And was there someone because very often we speak to authors, sometimes as a mentor or a teacher or a tutor, who sort of taps someone on the shoulder and says, Look, you can do this, keep doing it. Was was there that moment?
2: So the reason I got into journalism, so I knew I wanted to be a journalist from the time I was 13. Um, and it was because I was obsessed with a magazine called Dolly, um, which is sort of like a teen Vogue, you know, just a a magazine for teenage girls. And what I loved about it was that when I read something in there, I, it would change the way I viewed the world in some way. It could be like just a human interest profile about another 16 year old or another 14 year old. But I was like, Oh, I can't unlearn that now. You know, this has expanded my world in some way. And then I realized, Oh, this is, this is a job. Mm. Someone does this for a living. And so that's why I got into journalism and ended up at the LA Times, which was a wonderful place to work. I The training there was incredible and I, I had a lot of fun there. But then when Donald Trump became president, the job changed a bit, um, where every day was there was a new crisis. Mm. And the stories I was working on, I, I no longer felt that, oh, perhaps this could be the thing that changes how someone sees the world. You know, because every day it was just a new crisis. I, I felt like I was treading water. Right. And that's when I was like, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And around that time, I had been taking a creative writing class with the view of improving my journalism. Right. And an editor of mine at the LA Times who is absolutely wonderful and always, like, cared about what we as reporters wanted for our careers he was like, you know, have you thought of leaving journalism to get an MFA? And I said, what's an MFA? <laughs> and he said, well, it's a master of fine arts. Um, and, you know, if you have one, you can teach, but also MFAs like, you could use it to study creative writing. You could use it to study fiction. And you seem to be enjoying this creative writing class you're taking on the side. Mm. You know, it, it could buy you some time to figure out what you want to do next. And so that that was, it all happens pretty fast. Like I think he told me about the MFA in September and then I was applying in November. And then I found, and then I found out I'd gotten in the following February. Um, So it was very fast, but yeah, I'd say it was, it was those, the combination of those events that sort of led me down this path.
1: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, as, I'm also fascinated because you, you know you're working in the journalism world but you don't have any contacts in the publishing world and this this is going to be very familiar to a lot of our listeners and you've told us before the recording how you got your agent and again listeners we have not prompted Tracy to tell us this 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 is something again we've been telling it's a little nugget of advice we've been telling people uh for years uh how did you find how did you get a list of agents tell us how you did that.
2: So I found, I looked for novels that I either really loved or were in a similar genre to what I was writing. Then I flipped to the back and went to the acknowledgements section, because if, a, if an agent is even competent, they will be thanked <laughs> in the acknowledgement section. So I would find the name and then I'd Google them. Sometimes they have a website. Sometimes they have a listing on like a publisher's marketplace kind of uh, exchange And then I would look to see, are they saying that they're looking for something in particular? Mm. Um, And then I would craft a query letter, which is, um, I'm not sure if it's the same in the United Kingdom, but in America, which is where I did my querying, um, it's a letter that's about three to four paragraphs Mm. long um, where opening paragraph, you just try to hook them with what your novel is about. Second paragraph, you expand on it third paragraph, you perhaps compare it to other novels that are already out there, which is a very daunting thing to do because, mm. you know, I had this unpublished manuscript and here I was saying, like, well, if you like Celeste Ng and Viet <laughs> Tan Yuan, like Pulitzer Winner, bit Tan Yuan, you might like, I was like, man, I'm, I am embarrassing myself. <laughs> um, and then you want a, a line in there that explains to the agent why you're querying them in mm. particular so that it's not just some generic email blast you're sending out. Um, And here's where my journalism skills came in handy again, which Mm -hmm. is that as a journalist, anytime I wanted to do a story, I had to be able to pitch it to my editor. Like I couldn't just go off and write it. I had to pitch it to them. And oftentimes they'd be like, okay, make it quick. (laughs) And then if they liked it, they had to be able to pitch it to the section editor. So it had to be snappy enough that they could remember it and then pitch it. And that section editor, if they wanted the story for the front page, they had to be ready to then pitch it to another team. And so anytime I had an idea for a story, I needed to be able to synthesize it, Mm. give an elevator pitch, which I think can be very hard to do, especially if you've written a novel, you've written 60,000 words, 80,000 words, give me a 15-second elevator pitch Mm. on your novel and it's like, oh... (laughs) <laughs> panic mode and I remember when I first started trying to tell friends about my novel I would say well you know it's set in this neighborhood in Australia which used to have like this heroin epidemic but there were also a lot of refugees there and in 1996 there's this woman and her bro-. and I could just see my friend's eyes like blaze <laughs> over and I was like okay I need I really need to work on this um and so I I, I worked on it and I, I, I would write out a summary and then I would like, okay, let's try to get that short, get it, like, get it snappier, let's scrutinise every word until I got it down to, you know, when a 17-year-old boy is beaten to death at a restaurant, his older sister comes home, get the idea. Um, and so that then made it into my query letter. And my agent, once I spoke to her um, and I asked her, like, what was it that, you know, that drew your interest and she said well it was what you wrote in your query letter like i i had to request your manuscript after seeing how you pitched it um so yeah i think that the journalism skill of pitching definitely came in handy there
1: absolutely brilliant that's that's gold thank you for sharing that tracy appreciate it now having been through the publishing process uh what are the biggest lessons that you've learned and is there anything you would do differently next time around
2: um, I wouldn't do anything differently because this has all led me to having my novel published. So I think that is probably the right answer for me. <laughs> in terms of what I've learned, it's it's a similar thing to what I learned in journalism. So I think it just sort of reinforced um this idea of being open to revision because revision is where revision is where the writing really happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I I have so many writing analogies, all of which are probably confusing and not great. But <laughs> the, the way I I think of the first draft is, you're you're digging for clay. You know, you're you're a ceramicist. You are only you're simply digging up the substance that is known as clay, and your first draft is that pile of clay that is not shaped into anything yet. But it's the substance of what your story will be. And then revision is where you start shaping it and taking the clay and molding it into a vase or a sculpture. Mm. Um, and with each round of revision, you're refining it more and more and sometimes you're perhaps destroying it only to do it again. Yeah. Um, and I did that a lot as I was writing. And then once I had sold the manuscript and I was going through revisions with my editor at HarperCollins, it felt like more of that. You know, It felt like like someone coming in and saying you know you've done a good job of creating this vase but i could see it's going to chip over there i could see (laughs) there's an air bubble there it'll explode in the kiln if you put it in now (laughs) you know like these are the let's go back and like undo a a couple of things and add a couple of things um so yeah it's it's a very um like revision is super important
1: fantastic now i've Looking on your Instagram, I saw that you've been using a series of adorable dogs to promote (laughs) your book. Uh, First of all, folks, uh, we'll put a link to Tracy's Instagram in the show notes. You can check this out. Um, What brought that about? I mean, uh, and did it work, do you think?
2: I mean, dogs are the best people. (laughs) And um, so I I dog sit a lot for my friends. So I personally don't have dogs, but Mm -hmm. all my friends do. So I'm the go-to dog sitter a lot of the time. And, you know, what I get in exchange for that is I I use my friends' dogs for content (laughs) purposes. I'm like, okay, you want to stay here. You better earn your place. Please sit here with a copy of my novel and now smile and be adorable. Um, Whether or not it works, I have no idea, but it delights me. And I think that that's worth it.
1: Fantastic. And what's coming next from you, Tracy? What are you working on now?
2: So I'm working on a second novel, but I am in that clay digging stage (laughs)
1: where
2: I don't really know what this will look like, but... I am trusting in the process. It worked for the first one, so I'm hoping it'll work for a second one.
1: I'm sure it will. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, folks, all that's left unsaid is out there now. Grab your copy. It's getting the most amazing reviews. Uh, Tracy Liant, thank you so much for speaking to us and hope to speak to you again very soon.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That was
0: such a wonderful interview, Mark. And I think for me, it was really good to be reminded of the simplicity of... And I say simplicity in quotes, but this idea of you know if you want to find that dream editor, if you want to find that dream agent, there's clues in every single best-selling book out there in the acknowledgement <laughs> section, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, they, they, I mean, I don't think I've known a more difficult time to find an agent um, or you know or an editor if you, if you're looking for uh, freelance editors or what have you, because they're all I think they're all still reeling from lockdown, you know. Th- I went to. I did a recording in a, a publisher uh, publisher's office a few weeks ago, and this was in the middle of the day, and it was half empty because a lot of people are only working two or three days a week still, you know. So that there are people working from home, and uh, when you. You know, if you're an agent, you rely on things like the mailroom and having someone to photocopy something for you and stuff like that. So I think they're struggling at the moment. I think the the vibe I'm getting is, is it, you know, getting through that slush pile. I, they still haven't caught up from lockdown, you know, so... uh I think finding an agent is, is is tough. So anything that gives you a little bit of an edge, and we've always said this, looking the acknowledgements because, as Tracy said, that means they've got something made, and if they're in the acknowledgements, it means they are actually a nice person as well. You know, yeah, a positive
0: absolutely. force. So uh, a, yeah, yeah, it's a
1: good reminder as
0: well to um, to everyone out there that it's also about finding that perfect partner in some ways or near perfect partner like a match because if you start looking at acknowledgement sections of books that are completely irrelevant to what you're doing there's a reason why these agents and the reason why these editors work with those particular authors is because they're also into or fascinated or love their work so when you when you target people that are close to in your kind of tribe if you like of authors that you would live in uh, if you could kind of pick your perfect support group um, being able to go to those particular people means there's a much higher chance they're gonna they're gonna resonate with your work. And I think just that way of filtering down rather than like I'm gonna open the writer's yearbook and like
1: go like talk yeah. to every single I person. I mean right? that's the thing, you open the writers and artists' yearbook and there are thousands of them. So where do you even yeah. start? Where do you start? So, yeah, go to the bookshop. The other thing, when you go to the bookshop, you're looking for books that are similar to yours. And once you start thinking what books are similar to mine, then you have those comparisons you start thinking, okay, I can compare myself to this author or that author. And then you can start thinking of that submission letter that you know that, that Tracy was talking about and the way that you pitch yourself uh, oh. to those agents and editors and stuff like that. So it, it's you will learn so much by just looking for books that are similar to yours in the context of a bookshop. Where are they shelved? What are the books next to them? What are the books that are like them? What sort of language are they using when they're pitching? All of that good stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's a good reminder to everyone out there when they pick up that book of one of their favorite authors to remember simply this, they were once where you were. They Ooh. were doing exactly the same thing, possibly in even the same bookshop, looking in other people's <laughs> books and they go and that's how maybe they got that same editor. So, you know, there's there's a there's a generational cycle of life happening here and I think it's very very good to be reminded of that. Mm. Now, I love, love, love the fact that Tracy is really up in the game here with a 300-word a day challenge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, listeners, we did not put Tracy up to this. This is totally her thing. It's just a weird coincidence. She she does 100 more words a day than we 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 do. So, um, but yeah, and I love that. I love this thing that she said, and and she lays it out so clearly. Once you develop a habit, it's no longer daunting. When something doesn't scare you, you develop confidence. Once you have confidence, you have momentum, and then you've got a first draft. It, I mean, I mean, you know, it's easier said than done, but that is a very, very clear path and uh, we're hearing this again and again and again from people doing the two hundred word a day challenge. It's yeah, um, absolutely it's terrific.
0: Now, one of the things I wanted to chat about was the fact that that Tracy, it was fascinating that she said she was very, very strict on she would do her 300 words. And even, even if she was midway through a sentence, and even if she had that momentum, wanted to keep writing, she would stop. And stop. what we've yeah. noticed in a 200 word challenge, I think we've said this a number of times on the podcast, that actually one of the really ben- massive benefits of the 200 word challenge is most people might not sit down to write on a particular day. But if they only have 200 words to write, they think, okay, I'll I'll do it because it's 15 minutes of my day. It's 20 minutes of my day. But what we've discovered with the 200 word challenge is that on average people write a day, people that do it consistently, Mm. they're writing 650 words a day. So I I love, but I also love this idea. I think, you know, it's, it's horses for courses, like whichever, whatever thing works for you. The fact that Tracy would say, I would stop at 300 a day, was another way that you can do it. You can, you, can, you can say, no, I'll save those new words that I've got for tomorrow. I, mean, I personally like the idea of writing
1: till you're exhausted because you, you might end up writing 2,000 words. I'm sure people have. Yes, um, but what I think Tracy understood in that early stage, I'm sure she doesn't stop at 300 words every day now, but what yeah. she understood, it was about creating a habit.
0: Yes, it, it wasn't, wasn't about, about so up, much how exactly. much she wrote. Exactly. It's about the minimum she wrote every day yeah
1: exactly and that's what she understands and this is i mean this is this episode will be going out in the middle of naNoWriMo where people are probably if they're doing it <laughs> might be at their lowest they're end. hitting the brick wall aren't they Make exactly November, right yeah and you know folks don't worry about it you know just 200 words a day you know yeah, within a year, over year. Do, yeah, exactly still write so, more
0: <laughs> words in a year doing 200 words a day than you do you know as much as I love NaNoWriMo and, and they're, they're brilliant friends of the podcast, but if you just do NaNoWriMo once a year, you will not write as many words if you than if you write 200 words every single day. And yeah. I'll tell you which one's better for your mental health and your relationships mm. at home because we've yes. heard of all kinds of bad things. Literally, people exactly. talk when they do NaNoWriMo, it's like going on a boot camp for a month. And they they have to warn their family. It's like, you will not be seeing me for the next month. And then they have December where they
1: have to catch up on all the stuff they didn't get done in November because they were writing. Well what's the what's the word Tracy used? Daunting. It mm. you know, nanorimo, I've never done it because I'm not sure I could. And I've I haven't missed a day's writing this year. I've written over three hundred thousand words so far wow. this year to date. That's um hilarious. And that doesn't seem daunting to me at all. But the idea of taking a month out and doing that many words every day. And I've been doing this for yonks. You know, I've got six books out and more on the way in a couple of films. And I think, oh, God, that's hard. That's really, really hard. So, you know, it is daunting. So 200 I, words, 300 words feels a lot more doable yeah, to
0: me. I think. Well, I think also NaNoWriMo is brilliant um, if you've not been writing and you've got all this pent up like, oh, I've not been writing for a year or two years. It can be a real like, it's like an electric shock to the system. It's like, right, you're going to completely go full. And then off the back of that, I think it possibly is If you don't get burnt out, obviously, it can be easier to get back into the writing habit. But I do fear for people that use um, any kind of crash course thing, it's a bit like crash dieting. And we know that crash dieting typically, like if you just say, right, I'm going to, I'm going to not not have anything uh, to eat for the next month. That's not healthy. Um, you might lose weight, but it's not sustainable. Um, so it's this idea of just looking at nature. Like nature, a tomato plant doesn't grow a tomato in two days. It might in some weird lab somewhere in the desert, but you know, nature—it's it's, it's slow and steady wins the race. It's little and often, as we always talk about on the podcast. Right?
1: But then just to contradict myself, one of the people I was sitting on the panel and I was sitting next to at Forbidden Planet uh, was a guy called Travis Baldry, who has a book called uh, is It Legends and Lattes, which is this wonderful, cosy fantasy novel. And he did that as NaNoWriMo. And, you know, he's now at MCM. They flew him over yeah, from they- the States, you know, smash NaNoWriMo it. Have so- had
0: a ton of great... Novels that have come off the back of it as well. Yeah. So it's absolutely it's like I say to everyone: try everything. Like we've always said on this podcast, we're not here to tell you how you should, how you have to write. What the seven rules of writing are? We're here to say these are all the different ways people write. They're all the different ways um that people, you know, form their habits. You have to find yours. And yeah. I say to everyone: try everything. Try everything at least once. It's like the, I say to my kids: the three bite rule, right? You don't know if you're going to like broccoli until you've tried it three times. And after that, okay, you gave it a go. So try everything. Try NaNoWriMo. Try the 200 word challenge. um, You know, and and some things will work for some people and some things will work for other people. But unless you try them, you'll never know. And that, it's like people who discover that they love to sing and join a choir in their 60s. It's like, and then they think, oh, I could have been doing this all my life. And you don't want to get, you don't want to get um, you know into the later years of your life to discover actually the thing that really worked for me was the two hundred word challenge, right? You don't want to get at, you know you don't want to get to sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety to find that out. You should be doing it and trying it, um, trying everything to see what works for you. I, I love to sing, but other people don't <laughs> like okay. me it's singing. It's a very private thing, is it? Particularly dogs, <laughs> <laughs> they start That's howling. Funny. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Let's talk about this fascinating. Learning, th- learning storytelling through TV shows as we call it. Oh, like, I love this idea this. that Tracy kind of was brilliant. She like
1: laid it out there. She said, "I didn't read for growing up. I didn't read much." Yeah, yeah. Um, and it all came from this idea that you know she was baffled by Jane Austen, which I completely understand because you know you, you you're coming into the world, wonderful world of literature, and there is a chance that someone might thrust it, something into your hands and say, "This is the most important book." ever written you have to read it otherwise you know you're not a proper reader kind of thing and that can be really off-putting you know it's so you know jane austen i mean we're gonna have lots of listeners who are massive jane austen fans but just as many will be listening going i don't get it you know i prefer well, it's something like shakespeare, contemporary. for me
0: when i was when yeah. i read our first shakespeare novel when i was what in i don't know what it was He didn't like, write novels t- for a start sorry please. <laughs> but, but 12 years of age i couldn't make head or tail of king lear I didn't know what was going on in the last... That's a
1: tough one to start with. Do you know what I mean? King Lear, bloody hell.
0: So so the thing is, is that there's, there's, it takes time to develop the skills, doesn't it, to understand. And when you've got something like, um, you know, a a daytime soap, which is having to write for the mass market, they got, they can't, they can't take risks. They can't do like, you know, really deep dialogue and
1: no, they can't muck about. They've got they to keep the readers at at I mean, something like The Bold and the Beautiful, which is, you know, a very long running American soap. Uh, Neighbors, she mentioned as well. And over here, we've got, you know, uh, tons of soaps in the UK as well. Very often, they rely a lot on uh, commercial income, you know, so they need to attract lots of viewers in order to get commercials in order to fund the show and to do that they've got to keep people on the hook they've got to keep people coming back for more so they are full of those wonderful little micro tensions where you're thinking okay just another minute just another minute they also i mean you know we're living in a golden age of tv and streaming where at the time at the time of recording netflix doesn't have commercial breaks there is of course going to be a version where there are and in the in the screenwriting community i'm hearing people going oh no i'm gonna have to write for commercial breaks again because Mm. when you write for the bold and the beautiful, there will no doubt be a serious Bible that says, okay, we need a cold open where you grab the the viewer straight away and then after say 10 minutes we need a cliffhanger because that's where the first commercial break is yeah. and then another you know 8 minutes because you know in America there are commercial breaks every bloody 5 minutes it seems you know, oh, compared I know. to the yeah. UK you know and then we have another commercial break so the writers have to write in very specific slots in order to hit those deadlines and it's a real skill to do that so uh, you know they are the masters of keeping people on the hook same with Oprah and Judge Judy you know that, I mean You know, these are all dramas that have the, you know, they purport to be real, but they are in fact working to that same kind of model where they're they're keeping you on the hook. You've got to you've got to keep you've got to keep people coming after the commercial break because that's when they leave the room to make a drink or go to the loo, and you've got to have them want to come back afterwards. You know, it's kind of interesting as well to think about how
0: commerce actually dictates how people have to write. Isn't that fascinating that we we have to make amendments to ensure that they have some kind of economic model to make what they're doing viable. I think it's 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 sad in some ways because you just want people to write. I think that's been one of the beauties of streaming media that people could just that you could just write it, you know. I mean with the Netflix I was watching Ted Lasso the other day, that really random episode where coach um coach what's his name? Uh, uh, I've,
1: I've, I, you know I watch it and I can't the, the, remember. The guy with the beard. He's the just one if London, beard, isn't he? Coach yeah. Beard. It's <laughs> <that's> his name. <laughs> Thank you, Mark.
0: Coach Beard. Everyone's like shouting, Coach Beard, for God's sake. It's the really <laughs> no, it's random it's one where Coach Beard just goes, like, off on some weird, trippy hmm. adventure. And it's completely out there. But it was. I watched it, and I thought that felt that felt a lot longer than a normal episode. It was like forty three minutes compared yeah, to the usual was, half yeah. an hour. You can't. They could. They won't be able to
1: do that in the future with with commercials because it doesn't fit into the mold. But well, that's an Apple show. And actually, sorry, Apple, you're right, Apple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Apple. I don't think are, are thinking about a commercial model. Not, did, yet. Think, did, not yet. Not
0: well, yet. Well, either here's the thing. Here's the thing, folks. Watch this space. Netflix are having to do this model because they find themselves in a situation where. it dictates that they have to do it it's like twitter and all the rest of it going on right now people are changing their models of charging for content Hmm. netflix are either going to live or die by this decision i believe and regard regardless of what happens if if they live by it then everyone else will switch to the similar model if they're seeing netflix doing brilliantly well because everyone's happy with it so it's gonna it's gonna dictate I think the future of the future of streaming it's gonna be a really interesting play but my goodness me I want who knows who know, will Netflix be around in five years I mean uh, you know I, live, think, I think they well, will well life cycles to everything I, I remember working with the guy that set up one of the DVD by post services that actually eventually was bought by Amazon Prime mm. well that DVD by post service is no longer <laughs> <laughs> no longer no longer with working, yeah, exactly, but anyway, folks, so much more to discuss in the extended edition of this podcast we 're going to be talking about balancing story and the message we 're going to be talking about the importance of pitching and the elevator pitch and query letters and we 're going to talk about the fact that readers don 't owe you anything and mm-hmm. dive into this discussion that uh, Tracy mentioned about uh, the reader statistics that she got and how we know mm-hmm. in our world as, as book writers as novel novelists you know, how that information is there, but we can't get access to it. <laughs> um, and, and then we're going to also dive into looking about the, uh, the whole world of revising, first drafts, revisions, and publishing. It's absolutely fascinating. So if you are a subscriber to this podcast, a patron member or an Academy member, you will get that extended. And if you would like to get hold of that, then pop along to a bestseller experiment.com forward slash support to sign up to the podcast now. So, Mark, what's been happening on WINS and social
1: media this week? Oh, it's been wonderful stuff. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Thomas Dunn, uh, one of our listeners, he had heart-attacking, two cardiac arrests. I checked oh. in with Tom, Tommy and he says, I'm on the long road to recovery. He says, but the bonus is more writing time. So, <laughs> so. I love his positivity. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Out of every
0: travesty, right? Wow.
1: <laughs> so, yeah... Uh, Get well soon, Tommy. Uh, I really, really hope you you are on the road to recovery. Um, It's wonderful, though. Now, this I don't know if you saw this on the BXP group, but Susie Edge, who has been a a guest on a deep dive previously. um, And uh, one of our favorite authors, you know, on on, she's had an amazing year uh, this year with her book about uh, mortal monarchs. Uh, She says last night, Halloween of all of all nights, I watched Sleepy Hollow with the kids, then sent them to bed. I sat writing for a while in the quiet as, uh, as Mr. Edge was away, her husband. The hour was late and eventually I thought I should let the dog out before heading to bed. I like to listen to a podcast when I go to bed. So I turned on Spotify and selected the bestseller experiment. The wheel turned, but my phone didn't connect to the Internet. It often happens, so I gave up. I put the phone in my back pocket and without turning on any lights, I went through the house to the back door and to let the dog out. I live in the middle of nowhere, so it was pitch black and silent. I stood for a moment, looking out at the swaying trees, breathing in the fresh air in the darkness, and then a man's voice behind me said, "What are your writing dreams?" <laughs> <laughs> My phone had connected to the Wi-Fi. Mister D started talking. I haven't jumped so high in. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant!
0: Yeah. Oh, Susie, I'm so so sorry. <laughs> I do like an odd prank
1: here and there, but that's absolutely <laughs> genius. Halloween of all nights. Oh my God. Rhoda Rod, Baxter replied, Jeeves, she said, The much talking from your bottom sounds very worrying. I said, It's <laughs> never stopped us talking from ours, so don't worry about
0: it. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely go see a doctor about that. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely priceless.
1: <laughs> Um, yes, but uh, we've got a public declaration as well from Tracy Montague. Tracy has finished a 3,000-word homework final piece, two chapters of a new novel, from her, uh, and, and she said, I really like it. Think i will make a great project once uh, her current series is finished. Uh, so got back into and worked out where she is with book two of her trilogy, got all geared up to writing it again, feeling better about that. Um, but it doesn't sound like much, but I've worked on it every evening after work. So she's making a public declaration. She's going to finish... Book Two's first draft by March, the end of March, 2023. If nothing else, it will help me. Get a bloody move on, Tracy. That is in the diary. I put it in the diary with a reminder, so you'll be hearing from me at the end of March 2023. And mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it does work. And Tracy's first book is an absolute belter, so really oh, fantastic. Really Good luck with that, that, Tracy. Awesome stuff. Fantastic stuff. And uh Kay Vincent on the Academy. She's she's put wow, an actual proper writing win. I've just received an email telling me that I'm a successful shortlisted entrant for the Avon and My Weekly Short Story Competition, which entered in August, but didn't hear anything back from them by their September deadline. So she says, I'm a bit stunned. So congratulations, Kay, for making the shortlist. I'm fingers crossed that there's a win on the horizon
0: for you. Amazing news. Fantastic brilliant stuff so listen folks if you've got any wins you'd like to share with us we'd love to share it with the world and inspire other writers so just pop along to the bestseller experiment website and click on the contact button and you can fill out that form there mark and i read every single email and we try to respond to everyone Um, and uh, whilst you're there click on the newsletter tab and sure sign up to the podcast newsletter where we'll send you an overview of every episode that we've recorded what we've learned what you can learn too and um, all the great great like links of things coming up
1: as well and Mark how can people find us on socials Social media: Facebook is bestseller experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at bestseller XP. And just to say, look, we, we've had some absolutely cracking deep dives recently. These are for patrons as well. So we had Susie Edge talking about TikTok. We've had one on ADHD for ADHD Awareness Month. We've had one on screenwriting. We've got one. Uh, in fact, it might be out by the time you listen to this. A uh, deep dive on forensics, which if you're a crime or thriller writer, you are absolutely want to want to get to listen to. Um, so yeah. Do check these out. There's hundreds of hours of extra material, all for the taking. Absolutely. And folks, why do we make these deep dives? Well, we make
0: these deep dives to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. Yeah. And why do we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast? And that's because every podcast costs money to make. And we do uh, so appreciate people that are supporting this podcast. And if you have been listening to this podcast for a, a while now and you're really enjoying it, please do consider supporting it. It makes all the difference and keeps this show on the road. Um, nice. Also, if you haven't, Tried it yet? We talked about it in the interview today with Tracy. But if you want to get the habit of uh, writing for a lifetime, try the 200 word challenge. That's at 200wordchallenge.com. If you tried it before and you need a bit of a pep, you know, if you maybe, you know, fallen off the NaNoWriMo bandwagon, a good cure for that is. Get your 200 words and get, come and come and uh, start it again. It's there and it's available and it's free for everyone that does it. Um, 200wordchallenge.com. And finally, if you're interested in joining the Academy, uh, please do have a listen to uh, all the incredible Academy stories that we're giving you on the podcast, telling you about the amazing journeys that everyone's going on. And you can find out more by visiting academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. So, Mr. Stay, have a fantastic week this week. Can't wait to chat more very, very soon.
1: It's a goodbye from Mark 1. (laughs) And a goodbye from Mark 2.
0: Goodbye!